Duke's Mayo. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, your potato salads get it. BLTs get it. Tailgates get it. And restaurants get it, too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Duke's is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Duke's. It's got twang. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. When 19-year-old Nona Dirksmeyer stops answering her phone, her high school sweetheart can't shake the feeling that something is terribly wrong. So he races to the beauty queen's apartment, discovering a brutal crime scene. The subsequent investigation is full of twists and turns, leading law enforcement to not one but two suspects, both of whom were tried and acquitted. While many in the community have their theories on the identity of Nona's killer, Whomever that person may be continues to walk free to this day. This is the story of Nona Dirksmeyer. I want to begin by acknowledging a few names have been changed for this episode of The Murder Diaries. As I mentioned in my introduction, two people have been charged and acquitted of Nona's murder. While I, like many others, have theories on who committed this heinous crime, I can't in good conscience continue to spread these individuals' names since they've either been unfairly connected to the case for too long or have been found not guilty by a court of law. However, if you're desperate to know their true identities, a simple Google search will give you that information. It just won't come for me. Good morning, Cuddle Muffin. I love you and I hope you have a great day. That's the last text message Nick Smith received from his high school sweetheart. 19-year-old Nona Dirksmeyer on the morning of Thursday, December 15th, 2005, at 9.04 a.m. to be exact. The two college sophomores had known each other since kindergarten and became inseparable once they began dating as teenagers at Dover High School. After graduation, they enrolled at Arkansas Tech University together, but Nick threw a wrench in their plans when he transferred to Arkansas University at the start of their second year of college. While a 90-minute commute isn't the end of the world, it definitely made it more difficult for the couple to see each other. Between classes and Nona's extensive list of extracurriculars, she was heavily involved in local beauty pageants and volunteered a lot, both of which I'll get into in a bit. It was tough to find time for one another. However, they knew they would be together for the long run, so they made the most of their not-so-ideal situation, keeping their long-distance relationship alive with lots of late-night phone calls, consistent text messaging, and weekend visits. Nick's quoted in an in-depth CBS News article about the case saying, quote, I didn't like the fact that I had to be away from her. I really looked forward to going back home on the weekends, unquote. 
With that in mind, you can imagine their excitement when they reunited for a couple of hours the night before Nona sent the cuddle muffin text message. Nick traveled the 90 minutes it takes from the University of Arkansas to Nona's apartment at the Inglewood Complex in Russellville, her hometown. He'd completed all of his finals for fall semester classes and was ready to enjoy Christmas break with friends, family, and especially Nona, who wasn't quite done with her semester just yet. Nona, who was a music education major with a soprano singing voice that some describe as, quote, the voice of an angel, unquote, still had a few finals to wrap up at school the next day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. She also had plans to meet her little sister, not her actual biological little sister, but her little sister from the big sister organization that she was involved with. For those reasons, Nick didn't stay long that night, leaving around midnight, driving straight to his family home in Dover. They chatted on the phone around 1, 1.30 a.m. when he got home before both hung up and went to sleep. And now for work. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. The next morning starts like any other day. Nick receives Nona's text and response, not expecting to hear from her until later in the day after her finals. He knows that she's going to be busy. However, when the time of the scheduled finals come and go, and he doesn't hear from her, he finds this to be odd. He texts and then calls, still receiving no response, which is completely out of character for Nona. She usually responds right away. Worried but trying to make light of the situation, Nick sends a text at 4.28 p.m. saying, quote, you alive, unquote. That's actually such a relatable text and moment. How often have we either received or sent that exact same text, you alive? And honestly, a lot of time it is a bit in jest. You're not expecting that they are truly in danger. You're hoping they're not. But like I said, it's mostly in jest and so many of us have sent or received that exact same text. Exactly. This is one of those moments that truly makes this case feel relatable. Again, there's no response. He continues calling and messaging for two more hours until around 6, 6.30 p.m. when he and his mom head out for a Christmas party. Nick had long-standing plans to accompany his mom, Maggie, a school librarian, to a faculty holiday event that evening. He had been looking forward to spending time with his mom because he doesn't see her a lot, But he can't ditch the nagging feeling that something is wrong, that Nona could be in trouble. During the drive to the event, he grows increasingly concerned that Nona hasn't called back yet. According to his mother, he tells her, quote, Mom, I can't go to this party and wonder if she's okay, unquote. 
That's when he remembers his friend Brian works as a pizza delivery driver in the same neighborhood as Nona's apartment. He contacts Brian, begging him to go to Nona's apartment and see if her car is there. Brian agrees and soon reports back that Nona's car is there in the apartment complex parking lot. Nick asks Brian to knock on the door, ring the doorbell, or do something, anything, to get Nona to answer the door. I really believe Brian is a true ride-or-die friend because he does all of it several times, but there's still no response. That's when he notices the upstairs bedroom light is on in Nona's two-story apartment. He tells Nick everything over the phone. Alarmed and sick to their stomachs, Nick and Maggie immediately turn their car around, racing straight to Nona's apartment in Russellville. When Nick and Maggie arrive, Brian's still there. He helps Nick to try and pry the front door open, but they don't have any luck. The door won't budge. Maggie stays at the front door as the two young men then race to the back of Nona's apartment, where there's a sliding door. Nick later described the following moments for Dateline, explaining he was so set on getting inside that he didn't see what was right in front of him when he got there. Nick doesn't look inside as he grabs the sliding door handle, ready to yank it open. When Ryan touches his arm, stopping him, Ryan speaks before Nick realizes what Ryan is trying to tell him, saying, do you not see her? Dude, there she is. That's when Nick's world turns upside down. Nona's lying face down in a pool of blood in her front room, wearing nothing but a pair of small white socks. Nick and Brian then force open the unlocked door, which was usually reinforced with a burglar bar. This time, it's noticeably absent. As they run inside, Nick rushes to Nona while Brian lets Maggie inside through the front door. There's blood everywhere, on the floor, on the Venetian blinds, on the metal base and light bulb of the broken floor lamp a few feet beside Nona. The attack was vicious, consisting of several stab wounds to Nona's upper body and evidence of blunt force trauma to her head by the lamp that had broken into three pieces. The Russellville police chief would later comment, I walked in and saw a large pool of blood around the head, several abrasions to the neck and the shoulder. Instantly, Nick begins CPR, trying to get her to breathe, talking to her, praying for her, while his mom and Brian contact emergency services. EMS and police soon arrive at the apartment, separating Nick, Brian, and Maggie from Nona as they work to revive her. But their efforts are futile. The 19-year-old reigning Miss Petty Jean Valley succumbed to her injuries long before anyone found her. Nona Carol Dirksmeyer, who was named after her paternal grandmother, is pronounced dead on scene, less than two weeks before her 20th birthday, survived by her mother, stepfather, four brothers, and one sister. Law enforcement delivers the news to Brian, Maggie, and Nick, who howls in pain according to his mother. Nick then calls Nona's stepfather, who in turn calls his wife, Nona's mom, Carol. The stepfather tells Carol to meet him at Nona's apartment, wanting to deliver the news in person. She speeds to Inglewood apartment complex, where she's met by her husband, who delivers the news no mother wants to hear. She describes the moment to CBS News, saying he, her husband, met me close to the elevators, and I was just tingling all over. And I said, she's dead, isn't she? And he said, yeah. As the investigation begins, news spreads of Nona's brutal murder. 
The loss of such a bright light in the community leaves friends, family, and locals demanding swift justice and answers to their most pressing questions. Who would do this and why? Nona's loved ones remember her as a sweet and kind-hearted person without so much as a bad bone in her body. Look, we hear a lot of people described this way, but I want to drive home the depths of Nona's intrinsic goodness. She was such an all-around nice person that these qualities seemed to rub off on anyone and everyone who got close to her. In fact, when she began dating Nick, it was no surprise that his family witnessed a shift in his own demeanor. His mom, Maggie, is quoted at length in an in-depth CBS News article about the case saying she just made him a kinder, sweeter person. Nona's also remembered as the most unlikely beauty queen, and that's a direct quote. Don't get me wrong, she was stunning, and her looks alone would have led her to be successful. But like her friend Adrielle puts it, she was really shy, like almost painfully shy. So it caught a lot of people off guard when she began competing in beauty pageants. However, she had a purpose for entering the pageantry world. Not only did the experience help her with her own self-esteem, but once she was crowned Pope County Fair Queen, then Miss Teen Mount Nebo, and eventually Miss Petty Jean Valley 2005, she used her platforms to make a difference in the youngest lives of those in her community by bringing awareness to violence against children. I really struggled with what or how much of this aspect of Nona's life to include because She's more than her trauma. But after much consideration, I decided to leave in a pared-down version of what happened to her, only because it influenced her passion to help others. Despite having a loving mother, she had a rough childhood. Her biological father sexually abused her. She suffered in silence for years, never telling a soul about the abuse until after her dad died when she was just 10 years old. That's when her mom, Carol, found out. Carol later reflected on the news to the media saying, it was horrible. It's such the end of my world. I just couldn't believe something like that would happen, but I knew enough to know she was telling the truth. And I wholeheartedly love parents that believe their children. We stand. After that, Nona no longer felt the burden to deal with the abuse on her own. Her family supported her and so did Nick, whom she told not long after they started dating in high school. Carol told Dateline about the role Nick played in Nona's healing journey, saying, Nick was really interested in helping Nona get through some of these hard times she was having, and he seemed to be a really caring person. Like Nick and her mom were there for her, Nona wanted to be there for other young girls experiencing similar abuse. She volunteered her free time for years and years as a member of the Big Sisters organization, specifically working with girls who had dealt with abuse. With all of that in mind, it's no wonder Nona had become such an endeared member of the Russellville community. Now back to the investigation. Right away, law enforcement makes note of three things about the crime scene. One, despite Nona being completely nude, there was no indication of non-consensual intercourse. Two, there was no sign of forced entry at the apartment. So when I hear no signs of forced entry, well, we have a murder. My first question is, who had keys to this apartment besides Nona? There were only three people with a key to Nona's apartment. Nona, her mom, and Nick. However, it is important to note that, at least according to Nick and his friend Ryan, the rear sliding door was unlocked. Meaning, the burglar bar wasn't installed like it had usually been. 
And the third thing that investigators took note of was that the killer had attempted a number of ways to end Nona's life, namely strangulation and cutting her throat, before delivering the fatal blows with the lamp. After hearing all that, it's more than clear that murder was the sole intent that night. I guess we just need to figure out who law enforcement had their eyes on. There was one person in particular police had their eyes on, Nick, who, if you remember, had just done CPR in hopes of reviving Nona. So he was covered head to toe in her blood. And that is the first image law enforcement has of this man as they arrive on scene. Immediately, their antennae are up, and investigators begin to theorize that his emotional, almost odd reaction and use of his mother and friend could possibly be a ruse as an elaborate cover-up to a crime he committed. Chief Bacon later addressed the theory, stating, when I got to the apartment, he was standing just inside the door, and he's talking about Nick in this instance, and he stuck his hand out like he wanted to shake hands, and then said, oh, I can't then did his hands like this to show me they were covered in blood. I could see where law enforcement would be a little taken aback by that encounter. I guess my next question for you, Natalie, is what were the hand gestures that he was mimicking? I actually got this quote from a transcript, so I didn't physically see the gesture that the officer is referring to. However, after looking at the quote, I sort of got the impression that after Nick extended his hand in an effort to shake the officer's hand, he sort of lifted his hands up in an effort to show the officer the blood on his palms. So as to not be able to shake his hand. Got it, got it. Additionally, they weren't willing to look past the fact that Nick was the last person to see Nona alive. Hours after Nona's discovered, investigators bring Nick down to the station for hours of intensive questioning and to check his body for injuries because Nona had defensive wounds. They wanted to see if he had any on him, but he had none. Throughout his time at the station, he never requested a lawyer, and he maintained his innocence the entire time. Wow, that seems so abnormal to be in that position without a lawyer. I don't have any statistics or anything to back that up, but that just seems really abnormal to not have a lawyer. It's clear that Nick felt he had nothing to hide, but police still weren't buying his innocence. In fact, they paid attention to everything he said during the interrogation and paid even more attention to what he did while he was alone in the interrogation room. And he experienced a whole host of emotions while sitting in that interrogation room. Sometimes he'd be crying uncontrollably. Other times he'd be slamming the back of a chair in frustration. And then other times he would be sitting eerily calm while waiting for officers to return. We've said this on the Murder Diaries a lot. You can't expect people to react the same in these situations, right? What I'm wondering, though, is what did Chief Bacon have to say about what he saw Nick doing on that camera? Well, according to Chief Bacon, Nick's reactions while in the interrogation room, specifically that outburst of anger, gave him insight into who Nick was, saying, well, it tells me that he does have the capability of striking somebody or striking something, which he did at that point. As the interrogation continues, officers then begin asking Nick more pointed questions, wanting to know whether or not he hurt Nona. I'm going to play some audio in just a moment, but I want to talk about what is being said. At one point, the officer asks Nick, did you hurt her? To which he responds, I promise you, I would never. I would kill myself before I hurt her. I'm going to play it now, but I just feel like 
even though I've described what was said, it's always more powerful hearing the person say it out of their own mouth. I would I would never I would I would kill myself before I hurt her. Despite Nick's insistence of his innocence, investigators refused to believe him. However, they continue to do their due diligence by looking into everyone in Nona's inner circle. Within a week, they'd interviewed over 50 people, including Nona's other lovers. Did I just hear other lovers? You did. And no, they weren't in an open relationship. It turns out, unbeknownst to Nick, Nona had been seeing other men. They were able to rule out everyone except for Nick, who they now believed had a clear motive for murder. Jealousy. Investigators theorized that Nick found her in the act with another man and killed her in a fit of jealousy. Six days after Nona's murder, Nick is desperate to clear his name, and he feels the only way to do that is by going down to the Russellville Police Department and talking to them. He tells investigators, I'll do anything that you guys want me to do. I'll do a DNA test. I'll do anything. Nick had one caveat, though. He wanted to be able to say goodbye to Nona at the funeral home the next day, which he had helped set up with some friends. So he willingly took a polygraph test, which ultimately proved to be a huge mistake in proving his innocence. The polygraph examiner announced to Nick that he failed miserably. In fact, he told Nick, quote, Nick, there's no doubt in my mind that you killed her. He was at the station for seven hours, and he ended up missing saying goodbye to Nona at the funeral home. And this raised eyebrows among Nona's friends and family, and they started to wonder whether or not Nick was guilty. Investigators then held a press conference to declare all potential suspects had been cleared, except Nick. Further testing proved that Nick's fingerprint and blood were on the light bulb next to Nona's body. On March 31st, 2006, Nick was arrested and charged with Nona's murder. During the trial, his lawyer called into question a number of issues surrounding the investigation. One, certain blood samples were overlooked. They were never collected off the Venetian blinds. Two, doors and blinds were never dusted for prints. Three, they never looked for evidence upstairs. And four, which is most important, detectives collected an open condom wrapper from the table next to Nona's body. They never located the actual condom, but they did test the condom wrapper for fingerprints. However, they never tested it for DNA. After the defense called this into question, the condom wrapper was brought back to the lab to be tested for DNA. It proved that there was DNA left behind, and it wasn't Nick's. In fact, it belonged to an unknown male. Unfortunately, this didn't necessarily help his defense because the jury could view this two ways. It came from a total stranger or that it fit perfectly with the prosecutor's theory that Nick caught Nona cheating and killed her in a fit of rage. Nick's legal team did their best to defend their client, but they couldn't explain away how Nick's fingerprint ended up on the light bulb. Prosecutors claimed that Nick left the print after bludgeoning Nona to death. However, the defense maintained that he didn't even remember touching the bulb, insisting that he could have touched it inadvertently when performing CPR. Ultimately, the jury returned with a not guilty verdict. Then in September 2007, a local man named Greg Denny was arrested for burglary. This name and face was familiar to investigators. It turns out that he had been questioned in connection with Nona's murder because he lived in the same apartment complex. 
He had provided an alibi and was released without incident, so they never thought anything more of him. However, it turns out that the receipt he had given investigators as proof of his alibi didn't account for the same time frame in which Nona was murdered. It turns out that his DNA was the unknown male's DNA found on the condom wrapper. Police arrested Greg Denny and charged him with Nona's murder. Fast forward to April 2010. Greg's now on trial. His ex-wife testified that he was violent and he actually was obsessed with Nona. Unfortunately, his trial ended in mistrial and he was set free. The following year in 2011, he was arrested again for kidnapping and indecent exposure, landing him 15 years in prison. As of 2022, 17 years after Nona's murder, there's still no justice. I'd like to take a moment to remember Nona for who she was and the bright light she was for her community. As I was researching this case, I stumbled upon her legacy page where people that knew her or people that knew of her could write messages to her and about her after her death. There was one in particular that stuck with me, written by Rita Rocky and William Richardson, written a month after Nona's murder on January 18th, 2006. They wrote, Nona was a true blessing to know. Our lives are richer because she was our friend and sister in the Lord. She was goal-oriented yet so down to earth. She had a unique voice that resonated like no other. Her talent was truly God-given. She was an encourager and a warm, loving friend. Nona was a shining example to all. She loved people, but most of all, she loved the Lord and served Him joyfully. We will miss her lovely voice and personality, her love and her warmth. Heaven shines a little brighter and the angelic chorus has a joyful addition. That's where we'll leave it for this week. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on Instagram and TikTok at the Murder Diaries podcast.com and the Murder Diaries pod request at gmail.com. If you haven't already, go ahead and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.